So a little sociology lesson for those of you who may not know. This, for those of you who don't know much about punk rock, that is the mosh pit. Now, if you look really closely at this particular mosh pit, you will see a a young man by the name of John Leibowitz, who perhaps you may know better as John Stewart. He's that face that looks like it's snarling there on top of the backs of the other guys. This was taken circa 1984-1985 at a Dead Kennedys concert, one of the punk groups I used to listen to back in the day. And yes, I know it's a very offensive title, but that's part of what punk rock was intended to do, was to upset our sense of things being normal. You could, have found, you could find me between the years of 1985 and maybe 1991 or 1992 in a pit, in a mosh pit, slam dancing, pogo dancing, just about any Friday or Saturday night. And I counted, in all those times I was in mosh pits, only, I think, about uh, five bloody noses and four or five split lips. And actually, the, the pit was not an awful place to be. It wasn't unkind, at least the concerts I went to, because I think the four times that I had my glasses knocked clear off my face and they went skidding across the floor, someone always handed them back to me. The only time I went to a concert and intentionally exited the mosh pit because what was going on there was so unacceptable was was just this one time. I was seeing a band called the Godfathers at the old Ritz on 13th Street, 13th Street and 4th Avenue in New York City. And this was before the age of Nirvana and Kurt Cobain which is to say before it was acceptable for an alternative band, a punk band, to be also simultaneously commercially viable. And so this band, the Godfathers, an English band, just started to have some success, and they committed a cardinal sin for an underground band. Their show was sponsored by the classic rock station in New York City, WNEW 102.7. And because of some merchandising or franchising agreement, sponsorship, The lead singer of the Godfathers had to announce probably ten times during the concert, brought to you tonight by New York's classic rock home, 102.7 WNEW, and it made the crowd furious. Just about everyone, including myself, I do have to say, young and impressionable and stupid, was giving him the finger. But the next thing people were doing, I was not about to do, which is that people started spitting on the band. And at that point, I said, okay, I'm going to move to the back of the room and get out of here. See, the Godfathers were famous, in quotes, for a song of theirs that made some noise. It was called, I Want Everything. I want everything. I want it now. It's actually a really good, still very catchy song. And for me, it reflected my completely unfocused desires of who I was when I was an adolescent. I didn't know exactly what I wanted at all, so I might as well want Everything. And I think I confused what a lot of people do when they confuse desire with passion. You know, if that we're really, really passionate about something, that must show how deeply we want it instead of perhaps just being really loud about it. That the desire, in fact, doesn't really connote something very deep or something very meaningful. I heard a great example of this this past weekend when my wife and I were totally blessed. I mean, the story I'm about to tell you does not diminish my love for this particular person. I love her with all my heart. We were blessed to share time with our six-year-old niece and our four-year-old niece. And the four-year-old at one point, uh, they both got drawings 
of bunny rabbits from my wife is a really good artist. And then they could fill in the bunny rabbit with all kinds of crazy colors that they wanted to. But the four-year-old niece noticed that the six-year-old niece's bunny rabbit that had been drawn for the six-year-old niece was like the ears were infinitesimally. Like you need a microscope to see how much bigger the ears were for the six-year-old than they were for the four-year-old. I want a bigger bunny. Uh, Those are your parents know it. All right. Yeah. Okay. My wife, being a loving aunt, drew a picture with bigger ears. I want a bigger bunny. Did it a second time. Drew bigger ears. By this point, so much larger now than the original rabbit that the six-year-old had, still it wasn't enough. I want a bigger bunny. And five minutes of that continued with the sound echoing, echoing, echoing throughout the house, accompanied now by tears. I want a bigger bunny. Until finally she cried herself out and we moved on to the next thing and she forgot she ever needed a rabbit in the first place. Now, it may not be a bigger bunny for you. But even as adults, we can confuse the passion that we have for something with a truly heartfelt desire. Sometimes when we can't really identify why it is that we want something, we might put on that passionate face or take on that passionate voice thinking that if we're just more loud about it, then we must really, really want it badly. But passion and deep desire, wholesome desire, are not the same things. It is one of the central tasks of living a spiritually mature and maturing life, which is to learn how not just to want, but to want well. How to want things in wholesome ways of benefit to ourselves and to other people. So it's not about, in this tradition at least, immediately giving in to a desire or immediately denying a desire. But to give ourselves the space and time and attention and curiosity to develop our desire. To see what is really there in what we want. This morning I want to focus on wanting good things in good ways. The right things in right ways. And so I'm not talking about truly unwholesome desires. Harmful desires. The kinds of crimes that Jerry Sandusky is accused of committing. Or that pedophile priests have committed. There are different interventions, much beyond discernment, to reach people whose desires are to harm other people. Now today I'm talking about the kind of deep and inner discernment that gets us up close with our own wholesome desires. To see if they really are helpful for ourselves or others. Working with discernment like a guy named Ethan Nickturn, who's a Buddhist meditation teacher and the head of a group called the Interdependence Project in New York City. He talks about desire and very often the Buddhist tradition is uh, talked about as tradition, which desire is seen as a negative or a bad thing. And the point is to snuff out all desire, but he doesn't talk about it in this way. And by the way, if you want a little bit of Nickturn family trivia, his father, David, remember Midnight at the Oasis, that kind of silly crooning tune? David Nickturn, lifelong Shambhala meditation teacher, wrote Midnight at the Oasis. So 
Don't say you didn't learn anything here today. But this is what his son, Ethan Nickturn, wrote about desire. He said, desire is not a bad thing. Desire actually might be the very best thing about being alive and being human. But we have got to know desire's nature fully and carefully. We need to get curious about why we want so badly. Otherwise, we may end up making reactionary, not mindful choices that hurt ourselves and hurt the world in ways we don't even notice. This is not a new teaching about the nature of desire. It echoes for me the first time I heard a definition of evil that was a mature definition. Augustine or Augustine, however you pronounce it, whether you grew up Catholic or Protestant or none of the above. Augustine talked about that. Many of our actions that end up harming other people do not arise from, initially at least, a desire to do harm. He identified evil as disordered loving. Disordered loving. I love that. I I can work with that definition because it doesn't make evil something supernatural or something we can't try to understand or something we can only label other people and say it doesn't belong to us too. I think we all have the experience of disordered loving. Of wanting to love, but not loving particularly well. I mean, think about it, the love of family, the love of school, the love of country, the love of spiritual community. These are all wholesome things, and yet they can be made decidedly unwholesome or even harmful if they are not moderated by other desires to love well. I mean, think about that most famous love story of all time. Romeo and Juliet. The Montagues and the Capulets. They loved their families, didn't they? They loved their families so much they drove their teenagers to suicide. To love poorly is to be able to cause harm. And so to love well is to be able to foster our desires in a mature and healthy way. Now, I have a desired disorder. I think we all have desire disorders. I have many of them, especially when it comes to, you know, thinking about the next upgrade to the HDTV I have, because the one I have just isn't quite big enough. I want a bigger HDTV. I want a bigger HDTV. Not right now. I can handle that desire disorder. But for most of my life, up until the last six and a half years, I had a very active and very harmful desire disorder, which is, as many of you know, I was an alcoholic and now, blessedly, I'm a recovering alcoholic. We know we have a desire disorder when, as is sometimes said within traditions of people who um, recover or are recovering from their addictions, that one of the thing we desire so much, one of those things is too many and yet a thousand is not enough. That's how we know we have a desire disorder. And I have to tell you that. I didn't start drinking in order to become a louse or a shiftless or worthless alcoholic. (laughs) No one does. I wanted to just feel good for a moment because I felt so crummy the rest of my life. There was a good and wholesome desire in that. It just became diverted into other things that were not healthy for myself or other people. To be able to understand the whole of our desire. 
Not just the goal of our desire, but the whole of our desire. What is wholesome, what is not, what are wholesome means to be able to fulfill those desires, and what are unwholesome or harmful for ourselves as other people. Now, one of the ways we can try to do this is by projecting ourselves forward into the future. Anticipating that when we get what we want, we will be happy. There's only one problem with this, that those folks who study happiness and study human fulfillment for a living, not just in our own individual cases, but in the aggregate, they found something out that the psychologists who study happiness will tell us that what they found out is that we're not really good at predicting what will make us happy. That's why so many people who win the lottery actually end up quite miserable, less happy than they were before they started out, because they think the thing that will make them happy ends up not making them happy. So it's not perfect, but the best way to start to identify our desires, our goals, our wants is to work with who we are right now, that the best indication of the future is the laboratory of this moment. It's not about peering into crystal balls. It's about learning to take our pulse, learning to take our pulse as we work with what we want, being curious about it, as Ethan Nickturn said, paying attention to what is going on inside of us as we experience ourselves having desires, which is to say every single freaking day. To build intimacy with desire. To get in touch with what we want. And not just about the goal, but the feelings of what happens to us when we want something. And so I'm going to give you like five seconds right here, right now, which I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to ask you to think of something right now that you really want. Something that is a really real desire for you. It can be something great and huge and big. It can be for a bigger bunny. Whatever it is, I'm going to be quiet right now. Just think of it. Five seconds. All right. You're in touch with what you want. I hope so. How can we tell... If we are having a desire disorder with what we want. The first test is to ask ourselves what happens before we get that thing. As we approach what we want, that experience, that person, that event, whatever it is. Does it make us diminish the time we have now because we are so much looking forward to what we are anticipating? It's a natural human thing to look forward. I'm talking about looking forward in such a way that we get really impatient with where we are and who we are. And we think only then at that point will we then be happy. Now, this is the second last Sunday that I can do this. And so I'm going to say it for those of us who have a team in the Super Bowl. I can do this only one more week, and that will be next week. And just imagine how badly you're going to give it to me if the Giants end up losing next week. All right? So just think there's tremendous payback in this. So for those of us who have a team in the Super Bowl, if, as I am wont to do at this time in my life, checking out all kinds of media, all kinds of stories online, looking forward to the big game, and a lot of those sites, what they have is a literal countdown clock to the Super Bowl. Days, hours, minutes, seconds. Now, I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl, but I'm not diminishing this time right now. But it strikes me that many of us can have, including myself with things that we really want, an internalized countdown clock where all we're doing is waiting. 
counting down our lives until the next thing happens that we really want. And what we've done is given away our lives. Someone after the first service came forward and said, I've got a great example. Remember that band from the, from the 80s, Loverboy? Remember working for the weekend? That's perfect. Because if we're just working for the weekend, what we've done is we said only two-sevenths of our life matter. And we've given away five-sevenths of our time. This is what happens when we have a desire disorder and we are just looking forward. Now... While we are actually in the act of acquiring what we want during it, during that experience, during whatever we desire, if we find ourselves constantly worried about when is the other shoe going to drop, constantly worried about isn't enough, finding ourselves anxious, concerned, not letting the experience that we've said we want be enough that is a sign of a desired disorder and then of course there is after as well too if the minute it is over whatever that thing is that we have wanted do we find ourselves almost immediately looking back on it saying i wish it would have been more or i wish it would have been better or i feel guilty about it or i feel shame about it or i feel sadness about it and i find myself looking back so longingly that it's almost as if I never experienced it. To have this is to know what the Buddhist tradition calls wanting mind. And I'm going to show this slide to you right now. This, by the way, is associated with a guy named Brent Kessel, who is both a decades-long meditation teacher and student and a yogi and also a very successful financial advisor. He works with want and desire for a living. It's from his book, called it's not about the money now i'm not going to read all these off to you because it's just what i've described wanting mind is characterized by impatience by a sense of should by being imposed upon us by being comparative or competitive with another person or what the joneses have so we want that because their grass is greener than our own to have and to be driven by wanting mind with our desires is to admit that we will never be fulfilled by what we want. However, the next slide, please. That doesn't mean we give up our goals. It means we have to get more in touch with what we want and start to see, are they truly heartfelt goals? As Brent Kessel and other folks talk about them, do they include others? Do they have patience? Do they come from within and they're not just about competing with someone else's standard of success, but really do come and originate from our own hearts and then help connect us to other people? Those are the kinds of goals that do not disappoint and are not disorders of our desire. Really, the difference between wanting mind and heartfelt goals is this. How can we sustain the most ancient human quest there is? How to be happy. Not just pleasure, not just finding moments of enjoyment, but real, honest-to-God, sustainable happiness in this life. Now, if you show the next slide, this is um, from a guy named Tucker Max, who is essentially, if you know him, a professional jerk. This is from his book entitled, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. His follow-up book to this was called Assholes Finish First. This is a guy who makes a living 
from writing about how unkind he is. By the way, he's also unbelievably misogynistic and sexist. And so that's him pointing, holding a beer bottle to a woman. He's got his arm around saying, your face here. Now, Tucker Max has gotten very, very rich by talking about his wants and desires. And not too long ago, I was in a bookstore and a bookstore around here. And I wanted to see what this whole like Tucker Max phenomenon was about. But I didn't want anyone to see me reading Tucker Max. <laughs> I mean, I could have ran into one of you and I, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I was researching, I'm, you know. And so literally, <laughs> what I did, literally, was I think I got a copy of something really highbrow, like the Atlantic or New Republic or Popular, not Popular Mechanics, I never read that. Uh, but um, something that wasn't Tucker Max. And I literally opened it up and put the Tucker Max book in the middle of it and secreted myself over in a corner of the Barnes and Nobles so that no one could see what I was doing. And then I think I put it back in the cooking section because I didn't want to bring it back to the Tucker Max pile. Here's the interesting thing about Tucker Max, besides the fact that he is like desire run amok. Desire run amok as addiction. Desire run amok as harmfulness, as unwholesomeness. Is that just just this past week? I read an interview with Tucker Max, a fairly in-depth profile that I'm hoping is not just a PR stunt for his next book, but I'm hoping is real. That he actually now has someone in his life who he loves. <laughs> One person. <laughs> Not just a series of conquests. That he entered therapy in his 30s to recognize that he was a complete narcissist in his 20s. And that what he was trying to fulfill with his desires run amok was something that he had to take responsibility for. And particularly... I hope we'll write about this someday because I think there could be great wisdom there if it comes with a desire to atone for what he's done. Particularly in regard to that most basic, elemental, powerful, powerfully good, powerfully bad part of who we are as human beings. Our sexual selves. The fact that that sex drive is a very deep and ingrained part of who we are. That most powerful subset of our desire for many of us that can be wondrous and can also be deeply wounding. Next Sunday, we will start here at Wellsprings, a program that many of you are aware of called Our Whole Lives. It is a comprehensive, lifespan, liberal, religious-based sexuality education it recognizes that sex ed is not about the plumbing, although there is that in this class for these particular groups, groups, excuse me, of young kids, of young teens, these 13 and 14 year olds just starting to come to know themselves as sexual beings. But our, our whole lives is powerful because it is exactly that. Relating our own sexual urges to deeper values, to deeper desires, to connect, to be kind, to be just, to be compassionate, to focus on fulfilling pleasure, which is a good thing, but to do so in a way that does not harm ourselves and does not harm other human 
beings. What we are doing with Al is inviting the same thing I'm trying to invite all of us to do here today. To encourage that reflection on how to want well. How to want healthfully and wholesomely. And I got to tell you, the two people who taught me most about sexual desire in healthy ways were two people who were themselves not sexually active. I mean, there has been so much written justifiably about the sexual misdeeds that have been happening and have been abetted by the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. That I want to lift up for you today two members of that church who helped me see sexual desire in a healthy and wholesome way. One, and you'll get her name right off the bat, that she was not sexually active. Sister Margaret Farley taught my ethics, medical ethics, feminist ethics class at Yale Divinity School. She, in wanting to talk about a broader approach to wholesome sexual ethics that was not just about straight people, but what also would be more inclusive of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered people, said that her tradition, yes, did teach that one of the good aspects of sexuality was procreative. That kids come forward from sex, and that the world needs that. But that there is a different tradition as well within a tradition, a different teaching in which it is talked about that there is a unitive, a unifying power in sexual acts between people who are deeply concerned about each other's welfare and each other's flourishing. Now, Sister Margaret Farley was not sexually active But she knew much more about sex than I did as a young man. To recognize the unitive power of our sexuality is to say it is not just at all about getting some. It is about how we can open ourselves to another person with intimacy and vulnerability and trust and care. And through that complete the wholesomeness of our desire. I saw this very powerfully in another Catholic friend of mine, Peter Sanchez, who was just about to take in the summer of 1996 when we were both hospital chaplains at NYU Medical Center. He was just about to take his final vows as a Franciscan friar and was fully, openly about to take a vow of celibacy that he would remain committed to. After 30 years of being married to the same man, back then we couldn't call it married. Now, blessedly, in New York, we can call them married. And there really is no other word for who they were as a couple. And then his husband died in a car crash. And Peter did some very deep work and discernment as a man in his 50s, accepting that his sexual nature was not going away but it had found completion and desire with his husband for those decades that they were together. And knowing that and accepting that, he was only then fully ready to take on the life of a celibate person. He had experienced the unity of sharing his life, his body with soul, his soul with another, and was so blessedly happy for that opportunity 
that he was ready to move on to a different phase of experiencing desire for him. What I loved about both Peter and Sister Margaret Farley is that there was never any teaching, as there are in too many traditions, that this body, these bodies, are somehow corrupt and debased and awful things. Alan Watts, who was a spiritual teacher who was very, very popular a decade, two decades, three decades ago, says that there's a paradox he always found in societies that were deeply materialistic, that were all about getting goods and acquiring things and dominating other people and all kinds of wanting mind varieties of things. Alan Watts said he found in those societies that where there is harsh, harmful materialism, that simultaneously there is distrust, even dislike and hatred of the human material of the body. You see, I've got to tell you, actually, I have a lot of respect for those traditions who think that the world is a fallen and awful place and make the responsible choice to remove themselves from it entirely. You know, it's what the Amish do. It's what many traditions that see the world as a kind of dreadful fallen place. They say, okay, we're getting out. Not my choice, but I respect it. Far worse for all of us are those who choose to stay in the world, thinking it a dreadful place, thinking that all of our human desires are unwholesome and awful, and choose to dominate that world, to try and control other people, repress other people, tell other people what awful sinners they are, and so repress the fact that to be alive can be in some ways, at the base of our tradition, our Unitarian Universalist tradition, the original blessing, not original curse. That song we sing over and over again on Sundays, everything is holy now. That is to accept the natural goodness of this body. Come on, would you just... <laughs> don't make me the only one here touching myself here. Come on. <laughs> Come on, get in touch. Get in touch with the body next to you. I don't care. Just keep your clothes on. <laughs> There's a time and place to take your clothes off. Now here and now is not it. But that paradox of wanting to dominate the material world while hating the material world, it actually totally makes sense. But if, in fact, we can be in touch with our natural desires, we can reorder our relationship with the body and with the wants. And we can face in meaningful ways all the pain in our world that comes from those who hate the body or hate desire and tell other people that they should hate desire, too. This disorder of desire is at the root of a winner-take-all society, a just-do-it society, a society of malice and envy and greed and unmet needs. To know our desires intimately, to get in touch with how we want and why we want, takes time. And it is not all about reaching a goal, especially with sex which is so often turned into either a punchline or is turned into pornography. But to know that our deepest desires of our hearts are not just about the goals that we strive for. It's so 
blessedly important to know why we want the goals in the first place. A number of years ago, I read a story about Olympic runners, Olympic distance runners, marathon runners. I mean, a very lonely kind of solitude-based sport. And especially because they were trained for the Olympics. I mean, that's once every four years. It's not baseball. There's under 162 of them a year. It's once every four years. And so much focus and concentration. And the story actually talked about those people who went for the gold and got the gold or got a medal and then wound up incredibly unhappy (laughs) because they had achieved what they wanted and then kind of thought, well, is that all there is? But that there are those who train for those marathon races and whether they win or whether they lose, remain happy. The article didn't use these words, but what I got a sense from that article is that it was this. This was the difference. Was that there are those who in wanting their goals go for the gold. And then there are those who in pursuit of their goals go as the gold. That every step of the process is meaningful. And that whatever the outcome will be. None of that desire is ever wasted because all of the desire, not just its end point, is sanctified by work and diligence and attention. So next week, to conclude this message series on making choices mindfully, I'm going to talk about outcomes. Whether we get them, whether we don't. But for today, this is what I want all of us, I include myself very much in this, To be encouraged by. That we would bring today to our desires and with our desires a deep sense of curiosity, of openness to what we find in our wants. Because if we bring that curiosity, what we will also find there as well is care and connection with our body and other bodies. And with the body and soul of life itself. So today my only wish for you is this. That you will be able to desire your life. You will know why you desire your life. And that you can offer a small or maybe large prayer of thanksgiving for what you want. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O God of wholesome wanting, of deep desire that forms in us the lifelong habits of wholeness and wholesomeness, may we be among those in this world mature and maturing who are in touch and in contact with what we want. Because it is through this quality of desire that the world is sustained and refreshed and made new and beautiful again. Amen.